Hello there, and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. We are starting our longest sermon series ever in the book of John, and today's episode is entitled, John Loves the Word Word. All the way back in 2007, I was a third-year architecture student at Montana State University, home of the Fighting Bobcats. And during this year, I had the opportunity to go with the fourth-year students on a semester abroad to Turkey, Italy, and Greece. Now, these were three places that I did not want to miss, so I jumped on the opportunity even though I didn't know anyone in fourth-year architecture or anyone going on this trip that I would be joining. So I met up with my nine other new classmates in Milan, Italy, and we introduced ourselves to each other. Within a few moments, it became quite apparent to others that I was a religious person, which I'm not too proud to admit on this podcast today. So we traveled together as a class with our teacher from Milan to Venice and then to Florence. And when we got to Florence, we were taking pictures of Brunelleschi's dome when my classmate Chad turned to me and said, so Craig, what can't you do? And I looked at Chad blankly and I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you're religious. What can't you do? Now, this is a rather strange way to ask someone about their religion. But at the same time, I understand where Chad is coming from. After all, if you look at 10 of the most important rules in all of Christianity, you come across the Ten Commandments. And when we read the Ten Commandments, you can understand why Chad would ask the question, what can't you do? In Exodus chapter 20, we read about the Sixth Commandment, which is, you shall not murder. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. The eighth commandment, you shall not steal. And the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In fact, eight and a half out of the ten commandments are about what human beings should not do. The lone commandment that does not contain the phrase shall not is the fifth commandment, which encourages people to honor their father and mother. And the half commandment is the fourth one, which says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. However, in the clause of the fourth commandment, we read, you shall not work. So eight and a half out of 10 commandments are about what human beings shall not do. 85% of the commandments are inherently restrictive. So when Chad asks, what can't you do? I mean... It's a fair question, right? So I could have turned to Chad in Florence, Italy and said, well, Chad, here's what I can't do. I can't murder. I can't commit adultery. I can't steal. And I could have rattled off the Ten Commandments to Chad in their entirety. However, if Chad knew anything about the Bible, which I know that Chad did, he would have said, but aren't there other rules in Scripture? And to find more rules, all you have to do is turn one book to the right of where the Ten Commandments are found to the book of Leviticus. And in Leviticus 19, verse 19, we read about how God is speaking to Moses and God is giving Moses rules for the Israelites to follow. And God says these words, you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your animals breed with a different kind. 
You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you put on a garment made of two different materials. So when Chad asks me, Craig, what can't you do? I could have responded by saying, hey, Chad, well, I can't, I can't crossbreed species of animals. Also, I can't wear a metal button on my jeans. I have to wear a cotton button to make sure it's all from the same material. But Leviticus is not done. If we read in chapter 15, God is speaking to Moses and God is giving Moses the rules to all of Israel to follow. And God says these words, If a man has an emission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and be unclean until the evening. Everything made of cloth or of skin on which the semen falls shall be washed with water and be unclean until the evening. So when Chad asks me, Craig, what can't you do? I could have responded by saying... You know what, let's not answer that question with this verse. Let's just go to the next one, shall we? In that same passage, we hear about women's reproductive systems. In Leviticus 15, verse 19, God says, When a woman has a discharge of blood that is her regular discharge from her body, she shall be in her impurity for seven days. Now, it's here that you may say, Why is it that women are impure for seven days and men are impure just until evening? Well, the answer to that question is because men wrote the Bible. And the patriarchy, once again, is the problem. We keep reading in Leviticus 15, In her impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. Everything upon which she lies during her impurity shall be unclean. Everything also upon which she sits shall be unclean. So when Chad asked me, Craig, what can't you do? I could have responded, well, Chad, I can't sit on any chair anywhere that a menstruating woman has sat on. And I can't imagine what Chad's reaction to that answer would have been. <laughs> there are lots of rules in Leviticus, but the rules don't end in Leviticus. In fact, if you look through all of the Old Testament or what we should call the Hebrew Bible, you can go through and count up all of the rules that God gives humanity. And in the Hebrew Bible, there are 613 commandments. And if I were a real student of the word, when Chad asked me, what can't you do? I could have rattled off 613 different things. Now, some Christians, upon hearing that there are 613 commandments, Respond by asking a question. How can I keep more of these 613 commandments to show that I am utterly devoted to God? But there are some atheists and agnostics who hear about 613 rules and they say, Why would I ever want to be part of a religion with over 613 seemingly random and sexist rules? But then there are some in between who ask a different question. Well, I know the Bible is important, but these commandments given to us by God are rules that I do not want to keep. So what am I supposed to do? During my lifetime, I have asked all three of these questions. And I have found one of the most helpful passages of Scripture to be the first chapter of John.
The Gospel of John is attributed to Jesus' youngest disciple, John. Now, John, according to church tradition, lived longer than all of the other disciples. And John's Gospel, according to several biblical scholars, is one of the last books of the New Testament to be written. Now, when we read the Gospel of John, it's important for us to remember that John has three audiences. The first audience is the Jews. The second audience is the Gentiles. And the third audience is us. Now, we need to put an asterisk next to us because John never intended for us to be an audience, unlike the Jews and the Gentiles. John never envisioned a world where his gospel would be read in a place called California by a pastor in a language called English into a microphone, right? So we have to remember that we're not an intended audience. And when we can remember these three audiences, the text starts to reveal a deep richness that I have found to be quite beautiful. Let's go to the text and see what this looks like. We read in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. Now, immediately, the Jews would hear this and say, oh, John is telling our story. The reason for this is because when we read the words in the beginning, it would cause every Jew to hear these words and think of Genesis 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 1-1, we read these words, In the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. So when John begins his gospel with the words, In the beginning, the Jews would lean in and say, He is telling our story. Not only that, but John is going back to the origins of creation. What John is about to tell this audience has cosmological significance. So John writes, in the beginning was the word. John's gospel was originally written in Greek, but when the Jews would have heard the Greek word for word, they would have thought of their own language. And the Hebrew word for word is devar. When we compare modern languages to ancient languages, it's important for us to remember how different they are. Ancient Hebrew has about 10,000 words in its entire vocabulary. Modern English has about 170,000 words. So ancient Hebrew words had to cover a lot more ground than the words that we use in our everyday language. Because of this, the Hebrew word devar not only means word, but it also means thing. That's significant because when you go back to the Genesis story and God creates things, God creates these things with words. Well, of course God does. Because words and things are the same things in the Hebrew language. We read in Genesis 1-3, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. So the words of God have the power and the potential to create all of the material world. The words of God are what spoke the universe into being. So when we read the words, in the beginning was the word, you can imagine that the Jews heard this opening line and it meant far more to them than just the word 
word. But this is just one of John's intended audiences. Because John also wrote to the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles would have heard in the beginning was the word, but they would have heard it in their own language. And the Greek word for word is logos. Now, ancient Greek, much like ancient Hebrew, had far less words than our modern English. And for that reason, the word logos means much more than just word. In fact, logos can also be interpreted as reason. But to merely interpret the word logos into the word word or into the word reason would be to ignore the historical context in which this letter, this gospel, was written. Approximately 500 years before the gospel of John was written, you come across a Greek philosopher named Heraclitus. And Heraclitus once wrote, Listening not to me, but to the Logos, it is wise to agree that all things are one. Heraclitus believed that the thing that tied everything else together in this universe could be summed up in the word Logos. Heraclitus' teachings were well known, and about a hundred years after he wrote, along came one of Greece's most famous philosophers, a man named Aristotle. Now, Paul Anthony Ray writes these words about Aristotle and his relationship to the word logos. For Aristotle, logos is something more refined than the capacity to make private feelings public. Logos enables the human being to perform as no other animal can. So if we could somehow have Aristotle as a guest on this podcast and we ask him the question, Aristotle, um, can you tell us what the difference between humankind and animals are? Aristotle would respond with one word, logos. Paul Anthony Ray continues to write about Aristotle's relationship to logos by saying these words, logos makes it possible for him being humankind to perceive and make clear to others through reason discourse the difference between what is advantageous and what is harmful, between what is just and what is unjust, and between what is good and what is evil. So three or four hundred years after the life of Aristotle, along comes John telling the story of Jesus, and he opens his gospel with the words, in the beginning was Logos. Now it's here that we imagine the Gentiles who are Hellenistic leaning in closely and saying, oh, John is telling our story. Because when the Gentiles heard the opening line of John's gospel, it meant far more to them than just the word, word. But John also has a third audience, even though he never intended for it to be an audience. And that audience is us. And if you identify as a Christian, when you read the words, in the beginning was the word, you immediately think of the word of God or the Bible. Now, the Bible is considered by many people to be the founding document of our faith. But I think a much better way to look at the Bible is through the word inspiration. The Bible is inspired by the work of God. And writers looked at God moving and decided to write their perspective, their story, their testimonies down. 
And they wrote these words so long ago, and these words were passed down to us generation after generation, all in an effort for us to see the inspiration in our own lives. When we talk about inspiration, we're talking about the work of God, which brings us all the way back to the beginning of creation. So when Christians today hear the words, in the beginning was the word, we lean in and we say, oh, John is telling my story. Because the word word means far more to us than just word. Now, if you read the word word and you think to yourself, oh, that doesn't mean much to me. I believe that John would have written something different to you. John was very interested in getting you to engage in the story. And John wrote to two different cultures and chose a word that brought them together. So if you are indifferent to the words in the beginning was the word, I think that John would have written it differently if he knew where you were coming from. Perhaps you identify as atheist or agnostic, John would have written to you by saying, in the beginning was the big bang. I have no doubt in my mind that John would have selected these words because he would want you to lean in for you to say, this is my story. And John believes that the life of Jesus has cosmological significance and he wants you to go back to that time when the animating forces of the universe began to move. In the beginning was the Big Bang. All of these ideas from the Big Bang to inspiration to devar are captured in the Greek word logos. So let's read John chapter 1, knowing what we know now about logos. He writes, in the beginning was logos, and logos was with God, and logos was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Jesus. And without Jesus, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And then just a few verses later in verse 14, John reveals his thesis statement for the entire gospel when he says, and Logos became flesh and lived among us. Those animating forces of the universe took on flesh and bones. The thing that ties all of us together became a human being. The inspiration for all that is good and true and pure in the universe walked with us. The Christmas story in its most pure form is the idea of Logos becoming flesh and living among us. For John, Jesus Christ is what every theological word, every religious doctrine, and every holy commandment looks like in tangible flesh and blood. When architects draw plans and blueprints to construct buildings, the purpose is not to make pretty drawings. The purpose is that one day these plans and blueprints will become a building. And the drawings try to capture the inspiration of the architect 
so that it can become a three-dimensional structure to inhabit. That is the purpose of the plans. And John looks at the life of Jesus and says, this baby is the purpose for why all things came into being. And John spends the rest of his gospel supporting his thesis that Logos became flesh and lived among us for a very specific purpose. This purpose is revealed at the Last Supper of Jesus Christ with his disciples, which is recorded in John chapter 13. Jesus knows that his death is near. And so we can imagine sitting around that table that the mood is somber and the words are heavy. Jesus says to his disciples, I give you a new commandment. Now I can imagine the disciples thinking to themselves, oh no, another commandment? As if 613 weren't enough. But when you look closely at what this commandment is, it sounds like it's a replacement commandment for all of the 613 that preceded it. Because what Jesus says is, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. The purpose of the word becoming flesh is so that we might learn how to love in the way God wants us to. Jesus goes on to say, by this, your ability to love another in the same way that I have loved them, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Upon hearing this commandment, I wish one of the disciples would have said, that's great, Jesus, but what about Leviticus 15? You know, Leviticus 15, about menstruating women and emissions of semen, I believe Jesus would have looked at the disciple and said, who cares? Who cares? Does it help you to love other people in the way that I have loved you? And if the disciple said, not really, then Jesus would have said, leave it behind. Get rid of it. Now, if the disciple would have said, actually, it helps me a lot for this reason, then Jesus would have said, then continue to keep it. Because the whole purpose of every commandment for Jesus is to help people love other people more. To lead people into a deeper kind of love. Now, this may sound like I'm taking several liberties with the text, and I want to tell you that I am. The reason for taking these liberties, though, is because I have read the Gospel of John. And when we look closely at the Gospel of John, the logical conclusion is that this commandment is to supersede all of the other commandments and that the purpose of Jesus walking among us is so that we might love like Jesus loved. So I'd like to take you through a quick overview of the entire Gospel of John. Now, the entire Gospel of John is built around seven miracles of Jesus. And when we look closely at these seven miracles, each of these miracles reveal how Jesus loved the people around him. We begin with Jesus' first miracle in John chapter 2. Jesus loves other people by going to a wedding. Now, this may not sound that profound to you, 
But loving other people means supporting them in their big life decisions and ceremonies. While he is attending this wedding, Jesus is told that the host has run out of wine. Jesus then miraculously turns water into wine and everyone who tastes it says, this is the greatest wine I've ever had. Jesus is apparently great at making wine. <laughs> and he does all of this to keep the party going. And the word became flesh and lived among us to go to weddings and to make more wine. The second miracle of Jesus takes place in John 4. A royal official from King Herod's court shows up before Jesus and tells Jesus, my son is sick, can you heal him? Jesus heals the royal official's son. Now this may seem like just a nice gesture toward the royal official's son, but there's something much bigger going on here. The royal official is part of the system that oppresses Jesus. And the Tetrarch Herod was not liked by people who were in Jesus' social standing. So when this man comes before Jesus asking Jesus for help, this is a man who has sold out the Jews in an effort to gain money and power from the Romans. Now imagine if there was someone in the White House who you did not like. I know that may be hard to imagine, but let's just, let's just stretch the limits of our imagination, shall we? So imagine someone from the White House coming to you to ask you for help. What would you do in that situation? How would you love like Jesus loved? I can tell you for me, that would be rather difficult which is why studying the life of Jesus is so valuable to me. The word became flesh and lived among us so that we might learn how to love those who are difficult to love. The third miracle of Jesus takes place in John chapter 5. Jesus encounters a man who has been crippled for 38 years. Now, this man is in a lower social standing than Jesus, but he is in a much similar standing to Jesus than the royal official. Jesus sees this man who has been crippled for 38 years, and he heals him and asks him to pick up his mat and walk. Now, this may seem like a nice gesture from Jesus to this man, but when we continue to read John's gospel, John reveals that this all took place on the Sabbath. And Jesus asked this man to pick up and walk with a mat on the Sabbath, which is breaking the fourth commandment. Not only that, but Jesus healing this man on the Sabbath meant that he was breaking the fourth commandment. And when you look at the fact that this man has been crippled for 38 years, the question has to arise, what's one more day? Why doesn't Jesus just wait until Sunday? Because when we read John's gospel, John tells us that the Pharisees, the religious officials, wanted to kill Jesus because he was breaking the Sabbath. Jesus could have kept the peace and been much more effective, we think, if Jesus just would have waited till Sunday. 
But when you look at the way that Jesus loved this man who had been forgotten by society, it shows us that waiting one more day to help someone is actually a betrayal of love. Love doesn't wait. Love doesn't postpone. Love heals. And the word became flesh and lived among us to show us that there are times that we need to abandon our religion in order to move forward with love. The fourth miracle of Jesus takes place in John chapter 6. In this story, Jesus takes two fish and five loaves of bread and multiplies it to feed 5,000 people. Now, I've heard this story taught several times, but what I don't hear taught often enough is the fact that 5,000 people were hungry. Here was a governmental system that wasn't taking care of its citizens, but instead was allowing 5,000 people to live a hungry lifestyle. So Jesus shows up and he feeds 5,000 people who are hungry. And once they have had more than enough to eat, there are bags left over of food. And for the first time in a long time, 5,000 people got to eat until they were full. The word became flesh and lived among us so that the hungry might be fed. The fifth miracle of Jesus also takes place in John chapter 6. The disciples are on a boat on the Sea of Galilee when a terrible storm puts their lives at great risk. In the midst of this storm, Jesus walks on water and speaks to the disciples. And he says these words, it is I, do not be afraid. The word became flesh and lived among us to show us how we can avoid living in fear when our lives are at risk. The sixth miracle of Jesus takes place in John chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples come across a beggar who has been blind since birth. Now in Jesus' day and age and society, this man was considered to be the worst of all sinners. He was considered to be a terrible sinner because the theology of the day told people that all suffering happened because it was God's will. There was no suffering that happened apart from God's will. Otherwise, they thought God would not allow this suffering to occur. So here's a man who's been accused of being a sinner his entire life. And Jesus picks up dirt and spreads it across the guy's eyes and then spits into it. I'm not going to lie, this is very strange. However, the beggar goes to a nearby pool and washes this muddy concoction from his eyes and miraculously now he can see. The religious officials see this blind beggar now seen and they are furious for two main reasons. The first reason is that when you heal the worst of the worst sinners, you are essentially forgiving them, which is God's job alone. And this man should stay blind unless God willed it otherwise. The second reason is that Jesus once again healed this beggar on the Sabbath. 
And even though he heard all of those threats and death rumors and the fact that people wanted to kill him, Jesus continued to love rather than be worried about his own life's preservation. The word became flesh and lived among us so that we might continue to love even if it puts our own life at risk. The last miracle of Jesus takes place in John chapter 11. And this miracle is the most impressive miracle of Jesus. Because Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. Now, while that is an impressive miracle, what most Christians forget is that just a few verses before, we come across the shortest verse in the Bible in John chapter eleven thirty-five. 35. Jesus wept. These are important words because what it means is that Jesus went to a funeral. And Jesus was fully present at that funeral. Jesus grieved alongside the other people who were grieving as well. The miracles of Jesus in the Gospel of John begin with Jesus attending a wedding, and they end with Jesus grieving at a funeral. So the Word became flesh and lived among us to show us how to grieve in love. Two chapters after the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus is sitting around a table with his dear disciples when he says these words, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. The seven miracles of Jesus are in the Gospel of John to teach us how to love like Jesus loved. And our ability to love others in the same way that Jesus loved them will ultimately tell the world and tell others whether we are following Jesus or not. Jesus does not say, people will know you are my disciple based on how many verses you can recite from memory. Jesus does not say that people will know you are my disciples based on what church you go to. Jesus does not say that people will know you are my disciples based on how many commandments you keep. Jesus does not say People will know you're my disciples if you refuse to drink alcohol, if you refuse to have sex before marriage, and if you refuse to eat meat. No. Jesus says, people will know that you are my disciples if you love them the same way I have loved you. This all brings us back to Florence, Italy staring at Brunelleschi's dome when Chad turned to me and asked, so Craig, what can't you do? 12 years ago in 2007, I remember answering that question by telling Chad about my lifestyle choices. What a terrible failure of religion. (laughs) 
Instead, instead of talking about lifestyle decisions, I should have said to Chad, let me tell you what I can't do, Chad. I can't do anything that would prevent me from loving another human being. Because the whole basis of my religion is one commandment given to me by Jesus Christ. That I may love other human beings in the same way that God has loved me and that God loves them. My brothers and sisters, may we love like Jesus loved. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.